this is the Citizen of Heaven podcast. I am Hal Hammonds and I am a Citizen of Heaven. And I am your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. I bring you this message of hope today from Pensacola, Florida. This is report number 6, dated May 13th in the year of our Lord, 2019. I bid God's grace and peace to all of my fellow sojourners here in this earthly plane. I remain sound in body, alert in mind, and energized in spirit. I'm pleased to bring you this report of my recent labors in the Lord. Here's a synopsis. I've been preaching about Jesus' anger and how the things that angered him typically have very little in common with what angers us. I've been reading the Contemporary English Version, or CEV, and all things being equal, I'd rather be reading the Bible. I've been hearing transgender athletes keep entering and winning youth athletic events. The need to win has officially gotten out of hand, and I mean for everyone. I've been playing Cryptid, a game that pits my intelligence against my ego. If I had more intelligence, I'd try to have less ego. Are you ready? Here we go. This is what I've been preaching. What is it that makes you angry? What gets under your skin? Big things, little things, frequent things, uncommon things. Let me give you a list of stimuli that afflicted the people of God in times past. In fact, that Jesus himself encountered from time to time while he was here in the flesh. Things like racism, personal finances, general poverty, ill treatment of good people, unreasonable taxes, oppressive government, tragedy, eroding rights, family problems, war, Sounds like the headlines for this week, doesn't it? All of these things were part of Jesus' life in the first century in Roman-occupied Palestine. And there were a couple of other things that they had in common as well with regard to Jesus' response to them. They were societal problems. That is, they afflicted everybody, not just one person or one small group of people. And they were carnal. They were fleshly. It had to do with physical things. And Jesus' response to such things was pretty much universal. He acknowledged that they existed, and then he moved on. He refused to get angry about it. He did not emotionally engage on topics such as this. His advice to his followers when such things would come up was something along the lines of, that's too bad, get back to work. He refused to be sidetracked by emotional involvements in carnal affairs, as real as they may have been, as important in the short term as they may have been. This was not where he was going to spend the bulk of his energies. If you're following along the the video of the podcast on YouTube, you can see the scriptures that are laid side by side with all of these events and see that Jesus did, in fact, encounter these things. And he was very passive about it. He acknowledged that they existed and he moved on. He did not get angry. Now, let me give you another list, another list of things that Jesus also did engage with, something, things that do, in fact, uh, afflict us, just like the others did. And Jesus' response to these things was quite different, I think you'll notice. And the scriptures will be attached to these as well. Hangers-on, failure to forgive, 
excuse-making, indifference to others, pursuing personal agendas, binding man's laws, hypocrisy, lukewarm service, tolerating false teaching, abuse of worship, disciples' failure to grow. That's quite a different list, isn't it? These are things that affect individuals, single human beings, and they are of a spiritual nature. They're things that the person wrestles with and the person fails with in the spiritual plane rather than in the physical plane. And you see Jesus responding to these things very, very differently. When he sees a, a poor person, he says in John chapter 12, verse 8, the poor you have with you always. It seems like a, a remarkably dismissive and passive attitude towards such things. When the disciples encountered flagrant racism in Samaria, they were, were refused passage through the nation. Jesus said, shake the dust off your feet. Don't worry about this. They don't like you because of where you come from, because of who your parents are. Get over it. But when he sees a group of people who have gathered to listen to him supposedly, but actually are only there for the loaves and fishes that they ate the day before, and they're hoping to eat again, he turns them away. He preaches the bread of life sermon in John chapter 6, almost deliberately upsetting and angering them, chasing them away. He did not want this kind of disciples. When Peter, one of his most fervent disciples, surely with good motives, tries to stand between him and the cross, after having made this great confession in Matthew chapter 16, Peter says, upon hearing that Jesus was expecting to be crucified, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And he says, get behind me, Satan. That's an emotional response, isn't it? Because Jesus was prioritizing his own agenda, consciously or unconsciously, instead of God's agenda, a spiritual problem, an individual problem, a disciple of the Lord who refused to work on his issues, was suffering because of it, was encouraging other people to suffer because of it. He was deliberately trying to interfere with God's plan, whether he realized it or not. And Jesus wasn't going to have it. The most obvious example, probably in Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 and 13, and, and John records an earlier instance where he says he does virtually the same thing, chasing the money chasers out of the temple, people who had used the circumstances regarding the temple and the time and the, the world that they lived in to exert these huge profits from people who were traveling and didn't have animals to worship. He chased the, the money changers out of the temple. This was not going to be a, an excuse for people to make money and exorbitant profits at the expense of people who were simply trying to worship God. This is an abuse, and Jesus was enraged at this. Now, having said all of that, let me ask you a question. Which one of these looks more like your Facebook wall? Which one of these lists looks more like what gets you riled up? Which is more likely to send you into a tirade with your wife or your husband? Which one is more likely to get you enraged? The carnal things? Political things? Economic things? The amount of money in your wallet or not in your wallet? The way your boss treats you? The way the politicians treat you? Or rather, the way that you yourself or somebody in your vicinity is treating the things of God. Are spiritual matters really as important to us, as angering to us, as engaging to us, as spiritual things are? Do we really fight for spiritual things? I greatly fear 
that we have missed the boat with regard to anger. Anger is not a bad thing. Anger is an emotion. God shows anger. Jesus certainly showed anger. We are to show anger too, but toward the things that God is angry about. And if we get so caught up in the things of this world, and that's where we spend our emotions, and we don't spend it on the things of God, doesn't that say something about our character? Doesn't that say something about our priorities? I oftentimes encourage my my friends and and brethren to tithe their Facebook. And what I mean by that is look at your wall over the last few weeks, last few months. Is at least 10% of your activity in social media centered on spiritual things? And if not, why not? We don't have any problem telling people about our kids' soccer tournament. We don't have any problem telling our friends about where we went to eat dinner, about the, the latest Marvel comic book movie or whatever it happens to be that's, that's engaging us, that's getting us excited, that's getting us angry, that's getting us happy, whatever it is. Do we have that same reserve of emotion and, and fervor and when the situation calls for it, anger? with regard to spiritual things. I'm not talking about political things with spiritual overtones. I mean spiritual things. If we can't get worked up about sin, then what is it that we are getting worked up about? Jesus' priorities were always on spiritual things. He refused to get sidetracked with other things. We would do well to follow after his example. Yes, get angry. But get angry with the right reason toward the right end with God's purposes in mind. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. I've mentioned before my reading regimen that I am reading six different versions of the Bible. I did it last year, and I mentioned the versions that I read in an earlier podcast. This year, one of the versions that I'm reading is the contemporary English version, the CEV. I've had it for any number of years, and I haven't really spent a whole lot of time in it at all. I've explained my philosophy with regard to different versions of the Bible in in earlier podcasts and, and my philosophy for why I more or less ignored them in the past and why I'm starting to engage them a little bit more now. And the CEV has been sitting on my shelf forever, and I thought this was a good opportunity for me to actually read through it. I'd, I'd read some notes about it. I'd seen some some verse-by-verse verse comparisons and why this was a bad version to read and, and that sort of thing. But this year, I decided I would actually sit through and read it, and, and I'm into the Psalms now. And and I think I've gotten a pretty decent handle on what the CEV actually is, and, and more or less, it's as advertised uh, by its critics and by its supporters. The CEV is supposed to be a readable translation, a translation that sounds good in the ear, something that's easily heard rather than something that's a a literal word-for-word translation. And the difference between a word-for-word and a thought-for-thought translation is, I've discussed that in other contexts, but basically a thought-for-thought translation like the CEV is, is essentially trying to tell you what the Bible is saying in the words that they choose. And by what the Bible is saying, what we mean is, of course, what the translators say it's saying. And you're inter- interjecting human wisdom, human scholarship into this process. And it gets in the way sometimes. It gets in the way with all translations, really, but especially a translation that is not attempting to be a word-for-word translation. And the CV is a great example of this. 
there are various charges that are laid against the CEV, and you can judge for yourself how valid you think they are. Political correctness, is, of course, is all the rage these days. A lot of the Bibles are, are trying to phase out gender pronouns, especially with regard to God. Uh, you see this in the CEV also, but not just with regard to God. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, for instance, where church leadership is described. Instead of saying that an elder is to be the husband of one wife and then moving on to talk about he needs to do this and he needs to do that, instead, they're all, they need to do this and they need to do that. And instead of being a husband of one wife, it's simply devoted to marriage. And instead of an elder, it's a leader in the church or a church leader. It seems like they are deliberately trying to avoid any kind of idea that men and women are distinct, and especially with regard to roles in the Lord's church. Uh, this is not necessarily uncommon in the CEV. There are passages like, for instance, in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, where the uh, the preacher Ananias is telling Paul to arise and wash away his sins, calling on his name or calling on the name of the Lord. In the CEV, he's told, wash away your sins by praying to the Lord, which makes no sense at all. Any other, virtually any other version that you read connects the obvious metaphors of being baptized, the water imagery there, and the washing away of sins. Those two clearly go together, but instead of putting those together, the CEV puts the washing away of sins with the praying to the Lord, which, by the way, is not the same thing as calling on the name of the Lord, but that's, that's another issue also. Here, trying to simplify things, trying to make it easier to hear, we wind up convoluting the meaning. If you want to use the words turn back to God instead of repent, you can argue about exactly how dangerous that is. But uh, And there are other examples also. But the, this overall emphasis, trying to simplify things, trying to make it easier to read, easier to listen to, that is in and of itself a problematical philosophy when you think about it. I, I'm not opposed to an easy reading Bible necessarily. But when that is the priority, when making it easy to hear is more important than actually saying what the Bible says, that creates a very serious problem. The emphasis must always be on what the Bible actually says. I'm not especially interested in what somebody says the Bible says when I'm reading a book that says Holy Bible on it. I want to know what the Bible is actually telling me. Genesis 2 verse 18 is a good example of this. And it brings up the, the political correctness kind of thing again. Where Eve is said to have been made to be a helper for Adam. She's created second and she's created so that she can help Adam. We can have a big discussion about women's roles in the family and such another time. But what the Bible says is that Eve was created to help man. To help Adam, her, help her husband. And instead of that, the CEV uses the word partner. Now, why would you do that? Why would you call her a partner instead of a helper? Well, partner certainly has a different connotation, doesn't it? And the creators, the translators, the organizers, publishers of the CEV have commented very, and they're not keeping their agenda in the closet. This is easy to, to determine. And it fits in well with the Genesis story. One of the, the primary movers and shakers behind the CEV has basically said in so many words that in his mind, Genesis 2 is not a true story, but rather a truth story. 
And what he means by that is that it is explaining the truth of creation, that we came from God and that we were made in his image and that we were made male and female and that sort of thing. But as far as actually doing it the way the Bible says, an accurate depiction of what happened, they're actually being a man and a woman in the Garden of Eden and such, that's really not the point of Genesis chapter 2. So the philosophy goes. Well, if you take that kind of approach toward what the Bible says, it's not surprising that you take liberties with telling people what the Bible says. Now, I always encourage people, especially if you are unacquainted with the Bible, if it's, if it's new, if it's new to you, read the notes, read the translator's comments. They will tell you what they're trying to do. And if you hear words like trying to be faithful to the meaning of the text and, or trying to be readable, things like, these are buzzwords. Not necessarily a bad thing, but they are not the priority or shouldn't be the priority. If you want, having said all that, let me say this. I'll continue to read the CEV. I'll continue, I'll finish up through Revelation this year. And, and maybe I'll come back to it, maybe I won't. I, I don't think that this is a wasted effort on our part to read more readable versions. If they are read in conjunction with a more literal word-for-word -word translation. If it's part of a Bible study regimen, that could be very good. It shouldn't be a steady diet, though, because if we're, if we're not careful, we can mix up our doctrine a little bit. You can read Acts 2.38 in the CEV and get God's truth just as easily as you can anywhere else, but you can set yourself up for failure by trusting in it in every aspect. It's like a diet of cupcakes. It can be very easy in the short term, but in the long term, you gorge yourself on cupcakes and starve yourself to death of real nutrition. Spiritual nutrition is available in the true word of God. So maybe it's overstating it a little bit to, to say that the CEV is not actually the Bible as I implied in the opening comments. And if that was offensive to somebody, I apologize. The CEV is valuable in its place and it certainly contains God's word. But if you want to know what God's word actually is telling you to do, put your devotion, put your primary emphasis in a more consistent version. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. Transgenderism is part of a larger discussion about postmodernism and objectivism versus subjectivism and the nature of truth and, and large concepts like that that probably don't fit in very well to a podcast such as this. So I probably don't have time or, or space to discuss it in full. I'm sure I will touch on it from time to time in various contexts because it's very relevant in the modern day and it comes up in a practical setting in the world that we live in these days. But uh, perhaps the best way, or at least one way, for us to deal with transgenderism is to see it in microcosm, see a, a small example of what this postmodern world looks like, particularly with regard to transgenderism in the arena of athletics, youth athletics particularly. We keep hearing these stories coming up about transgender athletes who are competing in a certain setting and having extreme success and, and what would seem to be under, in some people's minds anyway, unfair success. And uh, what are we going to do about this? And is this unfair? And, and 
on and on we go. People get very, very heated on both sides of, of this discussion. And, and I want to make sure that I preface my remarks by saying this. I do not believe that everyone who identifies as transgender is some kind of frustrated high school athlete or college athlete or the parent of such. I, I'm, I'm not suggesting that at all. This is a, a much larger picture than that. And to try to minimize this and, and make it all about athletics misses the point. We have large-scale issues that need to be dealt with. But perhaps one of the ways that we can deal with it is to look at an inevitable consequence. Because this is going to happen, and it has happened, and it's happened many, many times uh, all throughout uh, our nation and other nations as well. People competing in a, an arena where perhaps they had been competing before against people who looked a certain way and they didn't necessarily do all that well, and so now they're competing against people who look this other way and they're doing much, much better, and even setting records. And either having those records stand or not having those records stand, it's a big political and we get all caught up in, in the who's right and who's wrong and, and that sort of thing. And I'd like to think that we as Christians are, are bigger than this. I, I would like to think that winning is, is not as important. And, and I'm not suggesting here necessarily that this is just all about what I, I hate to believe that someone would change something so fundamental about their nature, about their their physicality even, simply because they want to win a high school wrestling tournament. That that, that seems so unlikely and so improbable. I, I, I just hate to believe that any part of our society has, has gotten to that point. Maybe I'm wrong. I probably am wrong in some situations. At any rate, how important is it really for us to win? Now, we, we've discussed in other contexts the idea of winning in God's competition. Running in such a way that you may win, Paul says in First Corinthians chapter 9. And, and in other contexts also, finishing the course, keeping the faith, that this, this walk of faith is described as a fight or as a, a run, as a journey. And we need to win. We need to compete. We need to, to work hard at finishing first. And it's certainly a valuable concept and, and an interesting metaphor and a useful metaphor. But I hope we don't give the impression, hope I have not got given the impression, that winning in and of itself is an inherently noble thing. That it's, it's a good thing to win instead of losing, morally speaking. And that's, that's preposterous. And if we get so caught up in the importance of this competition, this, this artificial competition that we set up for ourselves, we lose all semblance of, of normalcy, all semblance of, of reality. I'd like to read, if you would, with, uh, from, if you'll follow along with me, in Psalm 10, a text that touches on some of these concepts. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. His judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all of his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. 
His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the village. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He said to himself, You will not require it. You have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his hand, from this land. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed, so that the man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. What a wonderful sentiment here. Wicked people getting away with being wicked and and flaunting their wickedness, thumbing their nose, as it were, with God. And God ultimately vindicates, and his people trust him to vindicate. It's an outstanding sentiment, one that is echoed many times in the Psalms. But let me tell you something. If you think for one moment that Psalm 10 is talking about high school wrestling tournaments, you have lost your way. And maybe it's not just one side of this issue that has become obsessed with winning and winning in a carnal arena, in a competition among children that ultimately has nothing to do with life, has nothing to do with with anything significant, even in this life, and certainly has nothing to do with the things of the Spirit. We as Christians need to be above such things. We need to be doing what Paul says for us to do in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1 and following. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. This is where our life is. This is where our priorities are. We should know going into this that bad things are going to happen, and sometimes bad people are going to get away with it. We're not happy about that. We pray to God for relief, but we trust in him that he's going to work these things out. When we become so obsessed with being cheated somehow out of some physical prize, or some friend of ours being cheated, or someone who lines up with us politically or socially. So obsessed with such things that we are moved to, to anger and, and even violence. Certainly violence of language. What's happened to us? How, how can we get so caught up in the things of the flesh? We need to rebalance. We need to go back to square one. Remember what truly is important. And it's not high school wrestling tournaments. Even if you're in the high school wrestling tournament, it's not high school wrestling tournaments. What's important is the deeds of the flesh versus the fruit of the spirit. And if we can emphasize the fruit of the spirit and diminish and even eliminate the works of the flesh, then that is a competition that's worth winning, that's worth fighting for. All the rest of it we can take or leave. It's certainly not worth losing sleep over. We're better than this, folks. Let's act better. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. 
If you want to stop listening at this point and go your way, I hope you've found the message instructive, inspiring, and most of all, faithful to God's Word. Please don't forget to like, rate, share, subscribe, and follow. But, if you stick around for a few more minutes, I would like to share with you a way to amuse yourself in a wholesome manner while waiting here in Satan's world, and perhaps pick up a spiritual point or two in the process. This is what I've been playing. When Tracy and I got cryptid for the girls for Christmas last year, we figured that it would be a big hit. It seemed like it had all the, the makings of a, a Hammond's Family Classic. Uh, we did not realize how popular it would be. It was an instant sensation. We could not quit playing this game. It is, uh, it, it's a lot of fun. It is, it is a really, really pleasant experience. What cryptid is, is a, a deduction game. You're trying to find the monster. You're trying to find the cryptid. And maybe he is in the water, or maybe he is in the pasture, or maybe he's in the mountains, or maybe he's wherever. And you have, the theme doesn't really work very well, but you get over it because it's so much fun. You have very limited information about where the cryptid is, or is not, as the case may be. It can't be in a certain situation, or it has to be in a certain situation. And you use that information to posit where it might be. And your turn basically consists of only one of two things. You either ask somebody at the table, can the cryptid be here? And they say yes or no. Or you say, I believe the cryptid is here. And if everybody goes along and says, well, I can't disprove that, I can't disprove that, well, then you've won the game. Because mathematically, we're told anyway, there's only one possible solution to every, and there's dozens and dozens of of permutations of how you put this modular board together. It, it could be in all kinds of different orders. And there's only one place in the entire board that will suit the purposes of the game, whether it's a two-player, three-player, four-player, five-player game, it doesn't matter. Only one solution to the board exists. And you can find it if you work hard enough at it. And if you're like us, you look at this and you're hearing the explanation, and you're reading the rules, and you're thinking to yourself, there is no way I could possibly do this. I don't know anything about this. How could I possibly find the answer? And you start playing and you go around a few rounds and you start figuring out exactly how it works and you, you know what? I might be able to do this. It's not as tough as I thought it was. It's challenging. It's certainly very challenging. But you can do it. You can find the answer. You just have to work at it. You have to work a lot. And you may or may not use the aid of pen and paper. And there has been a raging debate among cryptid players ever since the game came out, whether you are or are not supposed to use written tools, take notes. The game does not come with a notepad. And if you take my position, that means that the game is supposed to be played without notes. And so you do without. And you can do without. There's no question you can play the game without. But there are tools available. You can either make your own. Kylie writes out notes for herself in her own way. There are also downloadables that people have provided that give you a more systemic way of organizing your thoughts and putting things together. And I don't have any doubt that if I used notes, if I wrote things down, I would play this game better. I play okay. I win sometimes, but I don't win all that often. And if I were to take notes, I would forget a lot fewer things. I would stay more organized. I, I suspect I would do much, much better. And yet I don't do that because I'm stubborn like that, because that's the way that I approach life oftentimes and not always to my credit. Now, if my stubbornness, my insistence on doing things by myself, 
interferes with my ability to win a game of cryptid around the family game table every once in a while that's not that big of a deal but there is a real war i think in the hearts of humans in general and christians in particular of ego versus intelligence this this idea that i don't need any help when we know perfectly well that we do need help and help is available and we choose not to engage this help because somehow it, it upsets our fragile ego to do so that is self-destructive behavior and as indifferent as it may be whether we do this in gameplay or not it's very important and possibly soul threatening when we engage in these exercises of ego with regard to spiritual matters pride goeth before destruction and haughty spirit before fall the text says in proverbs 16 verse 18 let him who stands take heed that he does not fall first corinthians 10 verse 12 pride is a killer and pride is the only sin as far as i can tell that's described in the new testament that actually gets more powerful the stronger your faith is. The, the stronger a Christian you are, the more you have to battle with pride. We can absolutely convince ourselves that it is better for me to not ask for help. And that is going to kill, it kills Christians that I've known. People who were in harm's way, who were struggling, who were drowning in sin and just refused to ask for a lifeline when they knew perfectly what was available they knew it would help and they refused to allow someone to bear their burdens as the text says in galatians 6 verse 2 that is our job as christians we're there for one another we ought to be helping one another through these difficult times and we all know that we go through them we all know that the help is there we know all know that the help be it would be effective but we've got too much pride we've got too much ego to admit you know what i can't do this on my own I need some help. Why do we do that? Why are we so stubborn like that? Why can we not bring ourselves to confess our, our faults to one to another and pray for one another? James 5 verse 16 tells us that. At the very least, let's find the courage to lean on God. First Peter chapter 5 verse 6 and 7, we're told, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And, and really that passage answers the question, doesn't it? Humble yourselves. That's the problem. We don't want to humble ourselves. We don't want to acknowledge that we're weak. We don't want to acknowledge that we're flawed, that we need help in the first place, even though we know that we do need help and we know that everybody knows that we need help. Somehow it hurts our pride if we reach out for help. Maybe if we would get in the habit of consistently and regularly reaching out to God and humbling ourselves before him and truly casting our cares before him and in our heart of hearts, truly trusting that he is watching over us, that he is caring for us, that he is helping us through these difficult times, giving us the aid, giving us the reminders, giving us the help on a situational basis. Maybe that would open up our hearts a little bit to the possibility that we can do the same thing with our brethren. And as helpful as it is to pray to God and as comforting as it can be to pray to God, wouldn't it help also? And in some ways, even maybe help more if we had somebody that we cared about, somebody that we trusted, who was there with us, helping us through these difficult times. Yes, we have to make ourselves vulnerable. Yes, we have to open ourselves up. The closer somebody is to you, the easier it is for them to stab us in the back. But when we have this close, nurturing, loving, trusting relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ, where we truly bear one another's burdens, where we truly confess our faults one to another, it makes the game of life, it makes the walk with Christ so much easier to bear, so much more pleasant. 
when we are available for them, when they are available for us, then we truly are a family. We are truly a community. And we can help one another be more successful in every aspect of our walk with Christ. Surely that's more important than any personal ego exercise that might give us some inflated sense of worth in the short term. Thank God that the help is available to us. Let's take advantage of the help. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. If you profited from your time here, I have a few requests of you. Please pray for me and for this work. We need more citizens of heaven, and our prayer is that we be part of achieving this objective. Please subscribe to this podcast, and give a good rating on iTunes and other sites that allow you to do such things, and spread the word to your friends. Please follow my work through my website, www.halhammons.com. There you will find links to articles, videos, and books of mine. Seek me out on social media. You can find me on Instagram, YouTube, and especially Facebook. Look for me and for my pages, The Final Word, The Preacher, 20 Pages a Week, and Citizen of Heaven. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, The Citizen of Heaven, signing off.